Section 4 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 2, Part 2, Persia and the Meshed Pilgrim Road. The fortress at Aragon is the first one of the kind one sees when traveling eastward from Tehran, but as we shall come to a larger and better preserved specimen at Lashgrid in a couple of days, it will, perhaps, be advisable to postpone description until then. They are all pretty much alike, and were all built to serve the same purpose, of affording shelter and protection from Turkoman raiders. The Aradan umbars are nothing extraordinary, except perhaps that the conical brickworks roofs are terraced so that one can walk, like ascending stairs, to the summit, and perhaps also, because they are in a good state of repair, a sufficiently unusual thing in a Persian village, to merit remark. These umbars are filled by allowing the water to flow in from a street ditch connecting with a little stream to which every village owes its existence. When the umbar is full, a few spadefuls of dirt shut the water off. The chief occupation of the eastern female is undoubtedly carrying water. The women of oriental villages impress the observant occidental as people who will carry water. Worlds may be created and worlds destroyed. All things else may change and habits and costumes become revolutionized by the march of time, but nothing will prevent the oriental female from carrying water, and carrying it in huge earthenware jugs. At any hour of the day, I won't speak positively about the night, women may be seen at the umbars filling large earthenware jugs, coming and going, going and coming. I don't remember ever passing one of the cisterns without seeing women there, filling and carrying away jars of water. No doubt there are occasional odd moments when no women are there, but any person acquainted with village life in the East will not fail to recognize this as simply the plain, unvarnished truth. As the ditch from which the umbar is filled not infrequently runs through half the length of the village first, and personal habits of a Mohammedan population ensure that it reaches the umbar in anything but a fit condition for human consumption. But the Quran teaches that flowing water cannot be contaminated or defiled. Consequently, when he takes a drink or fills the village reservoir, your thoroughbred Mussulman never troubles his head about what is going on upstream. The Quran is to him a more reliable guide for his own good than the evidence of all his seven senses combined. Stagnant pools of water, covered, even this early in the season, March 12th, with green scum, breed fever and mosquitoes aglore in Aradan. The people know it, acknowledge it readily, and suffer from it every summer, but they take no steps to remedy the evil. The spirit of public enterprise has dwindled to such dimensions in providential Persia that it is no longer equal to filling up a few fever-breeding pools of water in the center of a village. The telegraphy himself acknowledges that the water holes cause fever and mosquitoes, but intelligent and enlightened mortal though he be in comparison with his fellow villagers, when questioned about it, he replies, Inshallah, the water don't matter. If it is our kismet to take the fever and die, nothing can prevent it. If it is our kismet not to take it, nothing can give it to us. Such unanswerable logic could only originate in the brain of a fatalist. These people are all fatalists, and, as we can imagine, especially so when the doctrine comes in handy to dodge doing anything for the public wheel. All Persian villages, except those clustered about the immediate vicinity of a large city, have some peculiarity of their own to offer in the matter of people's dress. The pantaloons of any Persian village are not by any means stylish garments, according to Western ideas, but the male bipeds of Aradin have something really extraordinary to offer, even among the many startling patterns of this garment met with in Eastern lands. To note the quantity of material that enters into the composition of a pair of Aradin pantaloons would lead an uninitiated person into thinking the people all millionaires, were it not likewise observed that the material is but coarse blue cotton, woven and dyed by the wearer's wife, mother, or sister. 
one of the most conspicuous features about them is that their shape, if they can truly be said to have any shape, seems to be a wild rambling pattern of our own ideas concerning the shape this garment ought to assume. The legs, instead of being gathered oriental fashion at the ankles, dangle loosely about the feet, and yet it is with these same legs that are the chief distinguishing features of the pants. One of the legs, cut off and sewed up at one end, would make the nicest kind of an eight-bushel grain sack, rather too wide, perhaps, in proportion to the depth, to make a shapely grain sack, but there is no question about the capacity for the eight bushels. No doubt these people would be puzzled to say why they are wearing yards and yards of stuff that is not only useless, but positively in the way, except that it has been the fashion in Aradan from time immemorial to do so. These simple Persian peasants, when they make any pretense of sprucing up, probably find themselves quite as much enslaved by fashion as our own fastidious selves, a wide difference betaken ourselves in them, however being, that while they cling tenaciously to some prehistoric style of garment, and regard innovations with abhorrence, fashion demands of us to be constantly changing. The arrogant telegraphy is a young man skinful of piety, rejoicing in the possession of a nice little praying carpet, a praying stone from holy Karbala, the holiest of all except Mecca, and he owns a string of beads of the same soul-comforting material as the stone. During his waking hours he is seldom without the rosary in his hand, passing the holy beads back and forth along the string, and five times a day he produces the praying stone from its little leather pouch, and goes through the ceremony of saying his prayers, and with becoming earnestness. In eventide, when he spreads his praying carpet and places the little oblong tablet from the Kerbala in its customary position, preparatory to commencing his last prayers for the day, it is furthermore ascertained by the compass that he has been pretty accurate in his daily protestations toward Mecca. With all these enviable advantages, the praying carpet, the praying stone, the holy rosary, and the happy accuracy as regards Mecca, the Aradan Telegraph G is a Mussulman who ought to feel tolerably certain of a rose garden, a gurgling rivulet, and any number of black-eyed horries to contribute to his happiness in the paradise he hopes to enter beyond the tomb. Indications have not been wanting during the day that the weather is in anything but a settled condition, and upon waking in the morning I fancy I hear the pattering music of the rain. Fortunately it proves to be only fancy, and the telegraph G, assuming the part of a weather prophet, reassures me by remarking, Inshallah, Amrus but nice. Please God, it will not rain today. Being a Persian, he says this, not because he has any particular confidence in his own predictions, but because his idea of making himself agreeable is to frame his predictions by the measurement of what he discovers to be my wishes. The road into Aradan led me through one populous cemetery, and the road out again leads me through another. Beyond the cemetery, it follows alongside a meandering streamlet that flows sluggishly over a bed of deep gray mud. The road is lumpy but rideable, and I am pedaling serenely along, happy in the contemplation of better roads ahead than I had yesterday, when one of those ludicrous incidents happened that have occurred at intervals here and there all along my journey. A party of travelers have been making a night march from the east, and as we approach each other, a wary car-carrying mule, suspicious about the peaceful character of the mysterious object bearing down towards him, pricks up his ears, wheels about, and inaugurates confusion among his fellows, and then proceeds to head them in a determined bolt across the stream. Unfortunately for the woman in the Kishaz, the mud and water together proved to be deeper than the mule expected to find them, and the additional fright of finding himself in a well-nigh swamped condition causes him to struggle violently to get out again. In so doing, he bursts whatever fastenings may have bound him and his burden together, scrambles ashore, and leaves the cushions floating on the water. The woman began screaming the moment the mule wheeled about and bolted, and now they find themselves afloat in their queer craft. Those characteristic female signals of distress are redoubled in energy. And they may well be excused for this, for the kashis are gradually filling and sinking. 
It was never intended that Kajib should be capable of acting in the capacity of a boat. The sight of their companions' difficulties has the effect of causing the other mules to change their minds about crossing the stream, and almost to change their minds about indulging in the mulish luxury of a scare, and fortunately the chavadars of the party succeed in rescuing the kajabs before they sink. Nobody is injured, beyond the woman getting wet. No damage is done worth mentioning, and as the two heroines of the adventure emerge from their novel craft, their garments dripping with water, their doleful looks are rewarded with unsympathetic merriment from the men. Few have been my willing days on Asian roads that have not witnessed something in the shape of an overthrow or runaway. So far, nobody has been seriously injured by them, but I have sometimes wondered whether it would be my good fortune to complete the bicycle journey around the world without some mishap of the kind, resulting in broken limbs for the native and trouble for myself. After a couple of miles, the road and the meandering stream part company, the latter flowing southward, and the road traversing a flat, curious, stone-strewn waste, an area across which one could step from one large boulder to another without touching the ground. Once beyond this, and the road develops into several parallel trails of smooth, hard gravel that afford a good, or better, wheeling than the finest macadam. While spinning at a highly satisfactory rate of speed along these splendid paths, a small herd of antelopes cross the road some few hundred yards ahead, and pass swiftly southward towards Idashmanamak. These are the first antelopes, or, for that matter, the first big game I have encountered since leaving the prairies of western Nebraska. The Persian antelope seems to be a duplicate of his distinguished American relative in a general all-round sense. He is, if anything, even more nimble-footed than the spring-heeled habitué of the West, possesses the same characteristic jerky jump, and hoists the same conspicuous white signal of retreat. He is a decidedly slimmer-built quadruped, however, than the American antelope. The body is of the same square build, but is sadly lacking in plumpness, and he seems to be an altogether lankier and less well-favored animal. For this constitutional difference, he is probably indebted to the barren and inhospitable character of the country over which he roams, as compared with the splendid feeding grounds of the far west. The Persians sometimes hunt the antelope on horseback, with falcons and greyhounds. The falcons are taught to fly in advance and attack the fleeing antelopes about the head, and so confuse them and regard their progress in the interests of the pursuing hounds and horsemen. The little village of Day Namak is reached about midday, where my ever-faring bill of fare takes the shape of raw eggs and pomegranates. Dam Namek is too small and unimportant a place to support a public touchcon, but along the Meshed Pilgrim Road the villagers are keenly alive to the chance of earning a stray karen, and the advent of one in these inexhaustible karen mines, a sahib, is a signal for some enterprising person, sufficiently well-to-do to own a samovar, to get up steam in it and prepare tea. East of Dayamak, the wheeling continues splendid for a dozen miles, traversing a level desert on which one finds no drinkable water for about twenty miles. Across the last eight miles of the desert, the road is variable, consisting of alternate stretches of rideable and unrideable ground, the latter being generally unrideable by reason of sand and loose gravel, or thickly strewn flints. More antelopes are encountered east of Damnemek. At one place, particularly, I enjoy quite a little exciting spurt in an effort to intercept a band that are heading across my road from the Elberg's foothills to the desert. The wheeling here is magnificent. The spurt develops into a speed of 14 miles an hour. The antelopes see their danger, or at any event, what they fancy to be danger, and the apprehensions are not by any means lessened by the new and startling character of their pursuer. Wild antelopes are timid things at all times, and, as may be readily imagined, the sight of a mysterious glistening object speeding along at 14 or 15 mile pace to intercept them has a magical effect upon their astonishing powers of locomotion. They seem to fly rather than run, and to skim like swallows over the surface of the level plain rather than to touch the ground, but they were some distance from the road when they first realized my terrifying presence, and I am within fifty yards of the band when they flash like a streak of winged terror across the road. 
These antelopes do not cease their wild flight within the range of my powers of observation. Long after the mousy hue of their bodies has rendered their forms indistinguishable in the distance from the sympathetic coloring of the desert, rapidly bobbing specks of white betray the fact of their supposed narrow escape from the vengeful pursuit of the bicycle, has given them a fright that will make them suspicious of the Meshed Pilgrim Road for weeks. Day Nemec means salt village, and it derives its name from the salt flats that are visible to the south of the road, and the general saline character of the country round about. Salt enters very largely into the composition of the mountains that present a solid and fantastically streaked front a few miles to the north, and the streams flowing from these mountains is simply streams of brine, whose mission would seem to be conveying the saline matter of the hills and distributing it over the flat and swampy areas of the desert. These flats are visible from the road, white, level, and impressive, like the great American desert, Utah, as seen from the Mathlin Section House, and described in a previous chapter, Volume 1. It looks as though it might be a sheet of water, solidified and dead. At the end of the twenty miles, one comes to a small and unpretentious village and an equally small and unpretentious wayside Takshtan, both owing their existence to a stream of fresh water as small and unpretentious as themselves. Beyond this cheerless oasis stretches again the still more cheerless desert, the rivulets of undrinkable salt water, the glaring white salt flats to the south, and the salt-encrusted mountains to the north. The shameless old party presiding at the Tachkan evidently realizes the advantages of his position, where many travelers from either direction, reaching the place in a thirsty condition, have no choice but between his decoction and cold water. Instead of the excellent tea every Persian knows very well how to make, he serves out a preparation that is made, I should say, chiefly from camel-thorn buds plucked within a mile of his shanty. He furthermore illustrates his own methods the baneful effects of being without the stimulus of arrival by serving it up at unwashed glasses and without noticing whether it is hot or cold. Much loose gravel prevails between this memorable point and Lasgird, and while trundling laboriously through it I am overtaken by a rainstorm, accompanied by violent wind, that at first encompasses me about in the most peculiar manner. The storm comes howling from the northwest and advances in two sections, accompanied by thunder and lightning, and the two advancing columns have seemed to be dense masses of gray cloud rolling over the surface of the plain, and between them is a clear space of perhaps half a mile in width. The rain-dispensing columns pass me by on either side with muttering rolls of thunder and momentary gleams of lightning, enveloping me in swirling eddies of dust and bewildering atmospheric disturbances, but not a drop of rain. It is plainly to be seen, however, that the two columns are united further west, and that it behooves me to don my gossamer rubbers, but before being overtaken by the rain, the heads of the flying columns are drawn together, and for some minutes I am surrounded entirely by sheets of falling moisture and streaming clouds that descend to the level plain and obscure the view in every direction. And yet, the clear sky is immediately above, and the ground over which I am walking is perfectly dry. After the first violent burst, there is very little wind, and the impenetrable walls of vapor encompassing me round about at so near a distance, and yet not interfering with me in any way, present a most singular appearance. While appreciating the extreme novelty of the situation, I can scarce say in addition that I appreciate the free play of the electricity going on in all directions, and the irrelevant matter in which the nickeled surface of the bicycle seems to glint at it and defy it. On the contrary, I deem it but an act of common discretion to place the machine for a short time where the lightning can have a fair chance at it without involving a respectable non-combatant in the destruction. In half an hour the whole curious affair is over, and nothing is seen but the wild-looking tail-end of the disturbance climbing over a range of mountains in the southeast. The road now edges off in a more northeasterly course, and by four o'clock leads me to the base of a low pass over a jutting spur of the mountains. At the base of the spur, a cultivated area, consisting of several wheat fields and terraced melon gardens, has been rescued from the unproductive desert by the aid of a bright little mountain stream, 
whose wild spirit the villagers of Lascar have curbed and tamed for their own benefit, by turning it from a rocky precipitous channel and causing it to descend the hill in a curious serpentine ditch. The contour of the ditch brings the water down a pretty steep gradient, and its serpentine form checks the speed of its descent to a uniform and circumspect pace. The road over the pass leads through a soft limestone formation, and here, as in similar places in Asia Minor, are found those narrow trench-like trails worn by the feet of pilgrims and the pack-animal traffic of centuries, several feet deep in the solid rock. On a broad cultivated plain beyond the pass is sighted the village of Lasgard. Its huge mud fortress, the most conspicuous object in view, rising a hundred feet above the plains. End of section four. Recording by Todd.